So tonight I'm going to talk about um, a topic I hope that you can relate to, and it's about having very, very busy, speeded up lives. Um, So I sometimes call this topic speed, and then sometimes people ask me, what are you going to talk about, speed? Busyness, speed, rapidity, um, life in the 21st century. I was um, I was living in India about uh, now eight nine years ago, and I was struck by how completely different the pace of life was, and that when I had to do something during the course of a day, I would set the bar really really low. So, for instance, mailing a letter could take four or five hours. So I would go and I would have a letter and I'd have to mail it and I would go outside and get on my bike and someone would call me over and say, hey, have a cup of tea. And I would sit down and I'd have tea. We'd drink and we'd chat and then I'd walk and then the little kids would want to play a game. So I would play a game with them and then finally I'd get, about an hour later, I'd get to the post office, but the post office would be closed. And it would be maybe one or two, at this point, two o'clock, so it still would be closed for lunch. And so you'd wait, and they would, there would be no one showing up. And so I would go read the paper and sit. And finally, an hour later or so, the, the, the mail, um, they would open it up. And then they didn't have the glue, and they couldn't find the, post, the right kind of postage stamp. And, you know, it would go on and on and on. And finally, it was about five o'clock, and I would mail the letter. I'd started at one o'clock. I would feel so happy because I had gotten one thing done. And I think about that in relation to these lives that we lead here in this culture, the busy, speeded-up quality of things and um, how completely different it is. Although, as we can imagine, as we know, this is changing quite a bit in different parts of the world. So we live in a culture with all this busyness. I don't want to say that busyness necessarily conflicts with our with the dharma or with the ability to practice because in some ways it does in some ways it doesn't i mean in one sense wherever you are there you are as john kabat-zinn says so if you're busy you can practice being present in the midst of busyness however i will say it's really hard it's really hard to live a life in sync with your values when you're speeded up and so it's, it's, um, it's my belief that less busyness, if we can slow our life down, we can find that it promotes a bit more clarity, ease, compassion, compassionate responses, and that it's really, it's a very important topic for us to look at, especially as lives get busier and busier these days. So most people I know, I want to first start on a personal level, most people I know tend to be stressed out. Most people are really busy, even young people. And I work quite a bit with young people, and I'm hearing, and I, you know, you hear 14, 15 year olds who feel really stressed out and so busy because of school. And I don't remember being that stressed out when I was 14, 15, or even 12. We're seeing this rise of all sorts of illnesses, psychological, physical, so forth, related to, uh, to our speeded up life. 
you know, this, this now this big diagnosis of ADD, which they say, did it exist? Did it exist 20 years ago? Was it not diagnosed? Was it, um, you know, there's all sorts of questions around it, but there's no question that people are under more stress, psychological, mental, emotional stress, because of the speed of our lives. There's too much information entering our heads. You know, we don't have the right filters for... You could sit down on the Internet. I mean, the Internet is just this incredible um, information glut that when we, we, um, we have to learn how to filter it, otherwise it's overwhelming. And email, I mean, how many of us, just raise your hand, how many are completely overwhelmed by email? <laughs> yeah, okay. So some of us, it looks a little bit like half and half. But email... I know know many of us feel as though we have to respond to all these things that come in and then you feel behind and then you feel guilty and then it's it's a big vicious cycle. So it was supposed to make our lives easier. A lot of these so-called labor-saving devices were supposed to make our lives easier, and now they've ended up making more trouble than they were worth. Now, email is an interesting thing because I think that email really... People have a real love-hate relationship with it. Like, hate it when it gets too much. Love it because it's exciting to get mail all the time. I mean, I, I know that, for instance, I can't wait for the mail to come every day, the regular mail. And I get excited. I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what I'm going to get. So there, that feeling on a moment-to-moment level is happening with the, on the computer. Ooh, I wonder what's going to come. And, of course, it might be you know, an ad for Viagra or something. But it's, it's, it's this constant sort of interesting thing that's a bit about being connected. Because I think humans so desperately love and want to be connected. And the internet and the cell phone, the incessant use of cell phone, it's all it's a way of connecting. So it has this positive side and then it has the shadow side. I just found out recently that teenagers um, now find email way too slow. So email is out. Instant messaging is in. You probably know this if you have kids, right? And um, cell phones now are too slow. Cell phone, uh, cell phone, sorry, cell phone messages are too slow. They don't leave a message anymore for each other, a lot of them. What they do is they just leave a missed call. So, they, so their name is there, and they don't have to take up the time with leaving the message. This is the, the latest. So we're living with this rapid turnover of people, of events, of information, of things, of life. Like Things are going just at this rapid pace, and it feels like we're speeding up. Like It's more speeded up than it was five years ago, ten years ago, certainly much longer than that. I mean, for instance, apparently there are 80% more feature films are, are produced now than there were in the early 90s which is not that big of a deal, but for those of you who like to go to the movies, suddenly there's so much to see. We're so busy. We have so many movies to catch on. We have 90% more movies than we did 10 years ago. So you see what I mean? It's a little, it's, it's, uh, it's a busy time. So multitasking, the word multitasking was originally a word used for computers. And then it became part of how we have to live our lives. We're supposed to multitask. I have a friend who is a, um, was a lawyer working in a corporate law firm. Was, um, she, she, was, she was a Buddhist practitioner and was trying very, very hard to do one thing at a time and do it mindfully. 
And when she came up for review, she was told that she wasn't multitasking. And this was a problem, and they were considering putting her on, you know, some kind of suspension. They were concerned with her performance. So multitasking, I want to read you this. um, Here we go. This is called Grab That Phone, Read That Email, The Multitask Tango. As I write this, I'm making a list, answering email messages, talking on the phone, and surfing for low airfares to Florida. That's only fair. After all, you may be reading this while cooking, sweeping the floor, talking on the phone, and surfing for low fares to Florida. Multitasking lives. Gone forever are those boring one-dimensional interludes where we sat and read a book, bereft of the garnish of five simultaneous activities. But is the whole greater than the sum of of its frantic parts? Maybe not. Um, According to this poll taken for Scientific American Mind, 57% of adults say that while they were busier than ever, they often feared that they were accomplishing less. What are some of the top multitasks? Gabbing on a cell phone while driving, of course. Half the respondents admitted to that. Nearly half talk on the phone while reading email messages. No surprise here. But the list also shows that 9% eat while working out. Now that's bizarre. (laughs) And then... They gave a couple of little uh, percentages, but they're really, here's another weird one. Um, Reading while, uh, for example, a map or a book while driving. That was 24%. 29% doing business by phone while playing with the children. So... Sometimes it feels like you know, for those of us who are involved in spiritual practice and we're really trying to live lives that are centered and grounded and peaceful, and yet we could, there's a way that, I know I've experienced this in myself, that it's just so incredibly satisfying to check off my to-do list. And that might be even more satisfying than sitting in a place of ease and peace and meditating. Okay, I got that done. It's done. So just it's interesting to notice our minds and our relationship to the speed. So that's the personal level. But from a cultural level, it's, worse, it's, it's kind of a setup. There's this wonderful Tibetan quote that says, Mesmerized by the sheer variety of appearances, beings wander endlessly adrift in samsara's vicious cycle mesmerized by the sheer variety of appearances. So we live in this world where there's so many interesting things going on and so much that pulls our attention and so much to do. We've, we have this unquestioning embrace of these new technologies, these things, as I said, that are supposed to save time and energy. And there, there are just all sorts of ways of cutting, of shortening time. For instance, I heard that they're trying to cut the spaces out of, um, in, well, when you're watching TV and suddenly there's television space, there's a commercial and there's a little blackness in between, they're trying to cut that out because that's too, um, it's people's attention span can't handle that. Um, I, I read about a noodle shop in Japan that um, has pay-by-the-minute noodles. So you just go in, you eat, you pay-by-the-minute, and you leave. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities for speeding things up. 
This is while we're on the topic of food, and I have to admit that what I ate, I was in a rush to get here, and I didn't know what to eat, so I um, made some instant split pea soup, but anyway. If a science fiction writer, this is from a book called Faster by James Gleick. If a science fiction writer of the mid-century wanted to convey a bleak, sterile, inhuman future, a standard tactic was to describe a world whose subjects would consume all their essential daily nutrients in a few manufactured tablets. No dirty, irregular, bacteria-filled fruits, no tablecloths and silver candlesticks. We're almost there, and it no longer strikes us as bleak. We are consumers on the run of brightly packaged, super-concentrated protein drinks and foodstuffs, power foods, soy delicious, energy bars, hammer gel. Do you dare to eat a peach? The very notion of a family meal as a sit-down occasion is vanishing. Adults and children alike eat breakfast on the way to their next activity. Eggs once took minutes even to soft-boil come now in McMuffins or in toaster scrambles. Even Pop-Tarts pop too slowly now. So, you know, so we can go on and on with the whole array of speed. And I just think it's, uh, I think that in some ways it's an uphill battle to be practicing, to be practicing to be conscious in the midst of a culture that's about moving forward at this rapid pace. And who's benefiting from this? There are, certainly the pharmaceutical industry is benefiting from all of the ailments that people are coming down with the, um, related to anxiety, related to fear, related to paranoia, related to ADD. You know, this is, they're benefiting. People who, um, the health field is benefiting. The, the manufacturers of these incredible labor-saving and time-saving devices are benefiting. But are we benefiting? This is the question. Society is alienated, less community ties, neighborhoods. There's all these neighborhoods without sidewalks. I mean, this may not be the case where you live, but it's interesting to look at what's happening in the culture. So the culture is a mirror of our mind, and a mind is a mirror of a culture. And what's interesting is to take the Dharma practice and look at what we can learn from our sitting practice and apply it out to our lives and to the world in general. So what's happening out there? The really quick answer is greed, aversion, and delusion. So greed, wanting experience, seeking novelty, aversion, hating boredom, wanting things to to not be the way they are, and all buffeted by a good dose of delusion. So greed, wanting experience. There's a word in Buddhism uh, that's that's craving, and that is the desire for, it's called kama tanha and bhava tanha. So these words are the craving for sense pleasures and the craving for experience or for being and having being the next thing, having the next thing, creating identities around ourselves and around things. So there's this thirst for pleasure, the thirst for the next sense pleasure. And what happens is our threshold gets quite, gets quite um, it keeps rising because the next thing, it satisfies, and then there's a desire for the next thing. So I remember years ago being on a meditation retreat, and I, my eyes... Um, I was quite open and spacious and alert. And I remember looking out at the sky and looking at the sunset. 
and it was the most beautiful sunset. I was looking out the window and I could see how much pleasure I was deriving from the sunset. And then I would notice that after about three or four seconds, my mind would get bored. And so suddenly it didn't look that interesting. So I figured out a strategy, which was I could close my eyes and then open my eyes again, and it was beautiful again. But then again, after about three or four seconds, it started to be kind of dull to me. And it was as though my mind couldn't take so much, uh, it just, it needed more novelty. It needed something more interesting in a sense. And this is happening all the time. I was getting to see this on this moment to moment level, this very kind of minute level, but this is happening all the time. Oh, we get a new consumer good. It's interesting for a day and on to the next thing and so forth. Aversion, the fear of boredom. That's such a big one for us in these days in the culture. When I work with, I, I was working with a group of young girls and I said, what do you think about boredom? And they said, we hate boredom. And I felt like they were speaking what we really feel. We hate boredom. Most of the time we hate boredom. And, and, boredom. and so much of what our culture tries to do is to, uh, to avoid boredom. So we've nearly eliminated waiting in line. Not completely. There is when you're waiting to get on an airplane, you know, that waiting in line. And then there's, of course, being on the telephone and being put on hold and having to put through that system. Horrible, right? So so there's the fear of boredom that leads to the speeding up. And then there's the wanting of experience. And then the underlying delusion, thinking that happiness is in this speediness that we'll get what we want, and the faster and the sooner we can get it, the happier we'll be. So I like to look at this really closely internally, how it manifests for my life. I see my own ability, inability to be present. I see the way I get really sped up. My mind is craving something. It doesn't want to be inactive. It wants something. And there's actually an energy that I can feel in my body, kind of like a discomfort. Like, I want something new. I want something interesting. And I can notice the space between... um, I notice that there's an initial discomfort. So if if I'm sped up and I try to stop and slow down, there's a lot of discomfort. But if I just wait it out, I can slowly connect and get quieter and slow down. So it's a discomfort that can ease. I notice that there are voices inside most of us, inside many people I talk to, inside myself, that say, you have to do, you have to accomplish, you have to succeed, go, 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 then you'll be happy. And sometimes this is really rooted in the sense that I'm not enough. If I, if, I, if I were enough, then maybe I wouldn't have to do so much. But, some, but a lot of us feel that I'm not enough, and the doing, the productivity, is a way of showing one is enough. Um, this is from Woody Allen, and this is about his sense of needing to do, and to do it really fast to accomplish everything. And I apologize if it's a little bit lurid, but anyway. It starts off, he says, I'm going to kill myself. I should go to Paris and jump off the Eiffel Tower. I'll be dead. You know, in fact, if I get the Concorde, I could be dead three hours earlier, which would be perfect. 
oh, wait a minute. With the time change, I could be alive for six hours in New York, but dead three hours in Paris. I could get things done, and I could also be dead. So that... He always, you know, he's very clear. So that, that, that needing to do, the sense of needing to accomplish, the way that that's really in, our, in ourselves, and that is an energy. I, I mean, you can actually feel it. You can sense that wanting to do. I also see it manifesting when I see that I'm consumed with details and I feel like I'm missing my life. You know, I go and I would, I just, I take a shower and I had no idea that I had a shower. I get out, did it happen? I don't know. Or I do the dishes. I have no memory of it. It's as though I'm missing what's going on in my life. And I've really had to work on this. And one of the ways, one of the tools I use is a mantra where I say to myself, this is your life. Or sometimes I use the mantra, I am here. And it's just a way of when I'm in the midst of something that's boring or kind of typical or ordinary in the day, it's a way of reminding me, this is my life. It's not something, it's not the dramatic moments. We think that our life is all the dramatic moments. When we look back, that's what we remember. But actually, about 90% of our life is washing dishes and putting on clothes and putting things away. You know, this is our life. So that reminder, it brings a bit more of a sacred quality to the experience. Sometimes when I notice myself very sped up, there's something going on underneath that I don't want to feel. So I might be sad about something or scared or concerned, and it's coming up as restlessness and, and the busyness. So, for instance, when you wake up in the middle of the night, one thing I've learned is when you wake up in the middle of the night, never believe what you think. Right? It, it's, the, it's those voices that just kind of come in, all the anxiety. Oh, what about this? And you forgot to do that. So I remember this was a few months ago, waking up in the middle of the night, spinning mind, worrying about something. And there was a sense inside me that finally, after about 20 minutes or so, said, Diana, I bet you're worried about something. I bet, something is, I bet, you, I bet there's something here that you, want, that you don't want to feel. So I stopped and I sort of lay back on my pillows and I closed my eyes and I put my hand on my chest because it's really helpful when I'm trying to feel strong emotions. And I just let myself sink in and into my body and there was all this sadness there. And so I don't want to feel the sadness, that was the first thought. And then just feel it, just relax, it's okay, it's just sadness. And so I did, and I felt the sadness, and it came like waves through my body. And then it relaxed, and the busy mind stopped, and then I went to sleep. It's a really great clue when you're noticing yourself running around the house trying to clean something up, just to take a moment, or clean, or do whatever it is, whatever, whatever to feel that energy of, of uh, busyness. Actually sense it in your body and see, is there something else here going on? We often experience this busy feeling, this speeded up feeling when we're meditating. And it comes in the form of restlessness. 
say you're meditating and you notice that your body feels really agitated or your mind feels agitated. And it could be in this very gross level or can be on a subtle level. So you might have been sitting here tonight thinking, when's the bell going to ring? When's the bell going to ring? I can't stand this. Um, Or it might be that it's very subtle. Like you're kind of meditating, but there's a little sense of, of not being exactly connected to your breath. And sometimes we can get into spaces in our meditation where it feels like nothing much is happening. And then that could be really boring and restless producing. I once once met a monk in Sri Lanka who said to me, if you can be with physical loneliness, can you learn to be with mental loneliness? Mental loneliness, when nothing really is happening. And I thought that was a great description of our mind, and what can lead us to the sense of boredom and aversion and busyness and seeking other things. So what do we do? How do we deal with restlessness? How do we deal with restlessness in our hearts, in our minds, in our culture, in our lives? It's a great question. The first Dharma perspective is learning to sit with it, to be with it. Can we be with that feeling of restlessness? Can we be with that sense of to do, of needing to do, of needing to accomplish? This is all, it's such a good practice. I have a memory of years ago, I was meditating on a long retreat, and I was having all this restlessness in my body, just so much restlessness and all this energy, and I didn't know what to do. So it was late at night, and I couldn't sleep, so I started doing laps running around the parking lot, thinking that that would help. So I ran around the parking lot, and then I got tired, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to do some strenuous yoga. So I started doing strenuous yoga, and that went on for about an hour, but I still had all this energy and restlessness. So then I ran out into the woods, and I thought maybe this was now about 3 or 4 in the morning, and I thought maybe being out in the woods, I'll take a walk in the woods. And then I thought I saw this mountain lion, and I got really scared, (laughs) and I came running back in. And um, The next day, I spoke to my teacher, and I said, I've had this horrible time. I've had so much restlessness, and I didn't know what to do. I tried running, I tried yoga, I tried a hike. None of it worked, and he looked at me, and he said, why didn't you try sitting with it? And I thought, oh, that didn't occur to me. <laughs> so that's the transmission. Can we be with the speed, with, this, with um, the speediness inside ourselves? When we're meditating and we notice a lot of restlessness, one strategy is to make your mind more spacious. So when we started the meditation tonight, I was having you do some hearing meditation, just listening to the sounds. It opens our field of awareness from this tight thing into something much more spacious. And for some of us, that can relax that feeling of restlessness and unease. Oftentimes, the restlessness is accompanied by hating it by a lot of aversion. So I'm restless and it's an awful thing and it shouldn't be this way. So if we can notice that and just say, oh, there's aversion, it's like we're noticing the layers of aversion on top. I hate that. When I hate that, I hate that. I shouldn't hate that. And hating the hating. And so if we can just kind of take a layer off at a time and really just be with the feeling of restlessness. It's just restlessness. 
then like I was suggesting, you can sometimes ask yourself the question, is there something going on that I don't want to feel? And this works also if you're really sleepy. You can ask yourself the same question, is there something going on that I don't want to feel? Because these can be defense mechanisms. They're not always, but they sometimes can be that. It's interesting to wonder about whether the cultural busyness, the speed of our culture, is also a defense mechanism. Like whether there's tremendous amount of grief and fear and concern that, we, that, that our population, that the world lives with, and that the speed is just a way of covering it up, of not dealing And I don't know if that's true or not, but it just, when we make these analogies, when we see the reflection of our inner work and our outer work, it's interesting to just explore these questions. One of my favorite teachings around busyness and speed is from Pema Chodron, who talks about the karmic wind, the karmic wind that drives us into doing. And she says her teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, used to call it the shaky tenderness, and that it's underlying, or she calls it also the sense of pre-panic panic. You know that feeling? Like, oh, I'm about to panic. (laughs) I'm panicking that I'm about to panic. And she says that what this is, it's sort of like a guard dog at the gate of emptiness. So that actually what we're feeling is the true knowledge of things as they are. When we're really anxious and, and busy and all that, that, that anxiety feeling is in us, that if we can just relax and settle into it, what we're settling into is the vast spaciousness of our own true nature. That that's what it is underneath. But instead we get it confused with, okay, I need something, I have to do something, I'm worried about this. But actually underneath is this, is the vast spaciousness of life. So I think I'll just give you um, a list perhaps of some antidotes for working with the busyness and speed in our hearts, minds, in the world. The first is to realize that this is important, that the pace of life is an important issue internally and externally, and, um, you know, worth, I think, worth paying attention to. The second is to be really gentle, because it's an uphill battle in this culture when everything is speeding up and speeding up, that to be someone who makes it, takes a stand or actually pulls oneself out of it or is working on it is, is a big deal in this culture. The third is to look at what makes you busy. Do you really have to do all those things you say you have to do? Do you? I don't know. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But I remember I had an experience once where I was, um, I was asked to write an article. And I really, really wanted to write this article. 
And so I put all this energy into doing it, and then everything just went wrong. And I couldn't find, and the printer jammed, and then my computer broke down. And, you know, it was one of those days. And I remember feeling like, I have to write this article. It's so important. And you can feel that in your body. You can feel that sense of outrage and of importance, and I'm important, and it's important when you have something like this. And I remember at the crux of it, suddenly a voice inside me said, well, you can do this or you can be relaxed. It's your choice. And so I thought, wow, you know, I would rather be free and relaxed and at ease than do this thing that I think I need to do to make me happy and to make others happy, in a sense. And it was such a moment of relief. And so I didn't write it. And it was fine, and nobody cared, and nobody made it. really didn't matter. I think I've heard Sylvia say once that she really, she loves to, um, to do things for, you know, when people invite her to teach, for instance, she loves to say yes, but often she's very, very busy. And usually if she says no, she's so worried she's going to disappoint them. And then she'll say no, and they'll say, okay, thanks. That's fine, no problem. <laughs> so we think it's worse than it usually is when we don't do things. And that's not always the case, granted. But Feeling into our body is the fourth. Feeling the force of energy, that sense that it's inevitable, that we have to, we have to that we believe, we believe that force of energy so strongly. Meditation as an antidote. I don't think it's a coincidence that at this time in our history that meditation is so popular. As everything gets speeded up, we're looking for answers, for ways to slow down. And so having a daily practice can be tremendously helpful. I've incorporated, for some years I've done Sabbath days, where I just take a day, I usually do twice a month, that's a day of silence. I might even just do nine to five. And it's a day of focusing on slowing down and relaxing, and um, it can be very, very helpful doing meditation practice or whatever practices that I feel like doing for that day in silence for myself. And I want to say that this is an issue, this is, I wouldn't be giving this talk if this weren't an issue for me. I'm working on this too, and it was very funny a few, uh, last year at some point, a few years ago actually, a friend of mine called and she said, I'm having this great day. Somebody said something and it really triggered me and I got really concerned, but I just relaxed and I was peaceful and I was able to handle it. And she's one of these friends that tends to get caught up in quite a bit of drama. And I said, that's fantastic. You weren't so identified. You weren't so caught in this. Pinch me. I must be dreaming. And she then, and then she said, so then we were talking later on and she said, so how's your day? And I said, well, I've just had this really great day. I, I had been forcing these bulbs, these flowers, I think, I forget what kind of flowers, but they were growing, um, these bulbs. And I said, and they grow so fast. So I've been sitting on my couch all day watching the flowers grow. And she said, you? Watching the flowers grow? Pinch me. <laughs> so just to say, it's an effort for many of us to work on this. Periods of not doing are really incredible practice. So I have a friend who does retreats for herself where she doesn't do anything. And I really mean not doing anything. She doesn't meditate. 
She doesn't, she just, the day is doing nothing. And so I'll say, can you take a walk? No. Can you read? No. Can you um, stare out the window? Well, that might be okay. So I said, well, what do you do? And she said, well, I take a lot of naps. But if you get my drift, (laughs) it's about, it's really about antidoting the need to do. And I take it in smaller dosages. So for instance, I'll, if I notice that busyness coming up really strong and that need to do, 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 I might sit myself down on a couch or chair and just sit there and do nothing and stare and relax. And I notice the energy going, okay, you got to do something. Great, you've done it. Ten minutes. Perfect. Get up. Go do. No, no, no. Just, so just take a half an hour. Take an hour and don't do. It's a lovely practice. Watch the flowers grow. The practice of no is a really good one. Learning to find that resource within that allows you to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't need to take another thing on. I don't need to be busy. It's not easy. It's possible, but not easy. And then the art of finding freedom within busyness. So if none of this seems possible and we live our busy, speeded up lives, then we just, we're busy. But can we be mindful? Can we experience busyness with our full heart, wholeheartedness? Well, this is what busyness is. It's also, there can be freedom within busyness. We can be awake. It's just busyness. It's just speediness. So I just want to end with a little story here. Um, I've spoken before about spending time living in a Buddhist monastery in Burma. And when I was in Burma, I was meditating and not, uh, not really doing anything. I was just meditating. Although meditating can be quite a bit of doing if you don't watch out. So in my year in the monastery in Burma, not much really happened, at least on the outside. For a year, I never got into a car or left the monastery's walls. I talked very occasionally to just a few people. I only ate what was on the plate in front of me. I never went to a restaurant. I spoke on the phone five times in one year. Not once did I watch TV, see a movie, dance, go to a party, hang out with friends, sing, eat afternoon, use hot water, or buy anything. I only wore one pair of shoes for the whole year, which, as my friends know, is a very big deal for me. When external activity is so stripped down, every little event becomes large in our minds. On retreat, I discovered that any time I did anything, there were results in my mind. When I ordained, it took my mind weeks to settle from the thrill of it. Drop a pebble in a pond, small circles of ripples move outward and outward. When I nearly stepped on a toe, I was nervous for three hours afterwards. The tiniest action had an effect, like the time a butterfly landed for a second on my toe and I sat transfixed with awe for several minutes. In the silence, there was time for my mind to feel the repercussions of each event, to integrate it, and to settle with it. I call this time reverberation time. So last night, I went on this sort of date. 
When I got home, my mind was so excited I couldn't stop spinning, so I crawled into the bath and let the reverberations happen as the hot water enveloped me. I let the rippling, rippling thinking run its course. I watched the chills and excitement and planning, and then after an hour or so, the thoughts mostly subsided, and I went to bed. We need this time. Everything affects us all the time, of course, not just when we're on a retreat. But the speed of our culture and the pace of our lives doesn't allow for reverberation time. Everything affects us. What happens when we don't give ourselves the silent space to sit and feel and move and transform and gestate and integrate? What happens when we no longer have reverberation time? So, very slowly, not speeding up, (laughs) we'll take some time to discuss this issue. Questions, comments, thoughts. been curious for me. There are there are times uh, in practice um, during meditation when I simply fall asleep, and and it isn't necessarily a product of the room being too warm or you know, body heat of everyone, whatever. Um, what what happens then? Is is this the body giving you an opportunity for a a, a respite? So the question was about sleepiness in meditation. You know, it could be anything, really. Um, Sleepiness is so common, and falling asleep is very common in meditation. And part of it is, because of the busyness of our lives, when we sit down and slow down, sometimes our body just needs sleep, and it just goes there. So it's not... you'll see changes, I mean, over time in your daily practice, and you might be able to correlate it to how busy you are or how less busy you are. Sometimes, like I mentioned, it can be a defense against something else. And um, sometimes also when we're very sleepy, uh, or, or with sleepiness, we might be quite concentrated, but not have enough energy to bolster the concentration. So it might be a state that's that actually has some concentration in it. So you can try to investigate it and see what it's what's actually going on. But oftentimes when people come and meditate, for those of you, many of you have sat retreats here, the first couple of days all you're doing is sleeping, in a sense, just catching up on all the sleep that you missed. By the way, Einstein, I found out, used to sleep 10 hours a night. So for those of you, another thing this culture loves is, oh, you know, I only slept six hours, I slept five hours. Well, Einstein used to need ten hours of sleep. So, sleep. Yes, in the back. Um, You know, I can remember when when, uh, watching TV was fun, and then generally a lot of people said, oh, well, watching TV is not a good thing. And I think a lot of people embrace that. Mm-hmm. So now I, I sense that with the technological culture that we have, I sense that it's a good thing 
that people identify and embrace their iPods, their uh, variety of different computers, variety of different technological, uh, you know, things. So that to embrace and identify with technology is a good thing. It, it, it actually lifts your spirit and gives you a sense of status. Uh, is what I was, was my my take on it. Uh, but in all this, uh, Diane, I, I ask, uh, well, where does choice come in this? I'd like to believe that, that the ground for choice is fertile enough so that good men and women can say, well, you know, this is fucked. And I'm not doing it. That's as simple as that. And it's, it's it, as in the way that they gave up watching TV or in the way that they limited the number of hours that and I, I, as you, I think would like to see that. I think, uh, I think, to get back to choice is to re-empower yourself mm -hmm. in a way that, uh, re so that we're not as bamboozled by all this mm -hmm. technology, which seems like such a good thing, mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, that's my thing. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting question, and how much choice do we have in the midst of this? And um, yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer, and I think that you see people with all sorts of different strategies around working against technology or how to use technology. I mean, I know someone who has this idea that she wishes that every iPod would come with a meditation on it so that when kids would get it or everybody would get it, you would also learn how to meditate. So that's actually using the technology to... Um, to deal with, to, to work with the very issues that technology are bringing up. Um, but I think that there's a lot of choice. I think that we, have, we do have a lot of choice, and there are ways that we tend to lose our sense of choice. And I think we need to be conscious of that. Otherwise, how does choice come in? But it's, it, anyway, it's an interesting question and good point. Yes? Uh, I think my path towards slowing down was my first step was to not necessarily answer the phone every time I rang. Mm. And I found for about half a year I would go into the shakes. <laughs> I was about ready to touch it, but after a while, it, it, I didn't even have to answer. And life went on. Thank you. That's a great example. If other people have suggestions, please let us know. In the back. So his suggestion about really just, it's like a train. You get on it when it's there and you get off it when it's not there. And I just want to say that it takes a certain level of consciousness to be able to do that. You know, it's a great, it's a great way of thinking about it, but oftentimes people get sort of sucked in. And I'm so glad that for you, you're able to sort of 
see the comings and goings. Yeah. Yes. It seems like it's all about the, um, the question of identification with mind or not. Because what I'm discovering, I'm in a phase right now of not working, of traveling and going inside. And it's an amazing luxury, but it's also torture um, some of the time because the mind loves to be busy. In fact, some of the most blissful times of my life have been in the midst of incredibly busy periods of where the mind has got a lot to deal with and is in flow in a way. And I'd like to differentiate, if I can, between being busy where it's appropriate. Mm. We have a lot to do and be very happy in that. And the, the mind looking for <coughs> things to do and being absorbed by them and actually turning in circles on itself, which is torture. Um, and so for me, the exercise at the moment is to is often to accept not doing something, or, or to especially the cultural pressure that I feel to be doing something and thinking there's something wrong with the state. Mm. Um, but I just wanted to draw, make a distinction between the two different things. It, often, you know, the mind is a tool, and when it's really being used. The rest is all flow. Mm. And it's turning on itself that we create all these illnesses and, and, and psychoses and different you know, suffering. I think that's a very helpful distinction. And it's sort of like when I was saying the freedom within busyness or getting zapped into, sucked into busyness. And I think, you're right, I mean, there's many times, and many of us have this experience of being in the midst of something, and you're just, you're just in it, and there's a presence to it, and it might be busy, 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 but you're really kind of going with that flow, and that's a good distinction compared to what the other piece. Yeah, thank you. Somebody in the back has had their hand up. Yes, that one. <laughs> I didn't send any actually. Mm-hmm. My family doesn't hate me and my friends haven't disowned me and it's it's um it's interesting those obligations that you set up, whether it's your own expectation or those that society has put on us is what we think we have to do. Mm-hmm. Like not answering the phone. That's great, thank you for saying that. Yeah. So. <coughs> When I was a kid, I was a science fiction fan, and there was a novel written back in the 50s. I think the author was Kurt Vonnegut, I wouldn't testify to that. And the, the model he had was it was set in the year 2000, which is a little behind our time. And society was structured so that machines were doing all the work. There were about 10% of the population was the scientists and engineers who kept the machines going. And the other 90% was on the other side of the river, and they had nothing to do with their lives. They spent their time drinking and fighting and playing sports. <laughs> I'm just struck by how wrong he was. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You kind of look at it like um, having open-mindedness or not being broad-minded. Um, when I start getting where I'm like a pinball machine and I'm bouncing off all the bumpers or whatever, and my mind is like running the body that I need to stop or pay attention that, that this has started to happen, that like I'm just on 
um, what do you call it, free, free flight or something like a plane, automatic pilot. And it's time to stop and go back so that I can be mm -hmm. present and you know do whatever I got to do as I do it. So, so that my so that I'm actually in stopping and enjoying whatever it is that I am walking through when I'm doing it, mm -hmm. instead of uh, just doing or being or you know. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to put in words sometimes, but, but, uh, but it's been, I've been able to do it. It's like turning off the light switch and being here again, turning it on when you need it. It's a tool. Mm -hmm. So when I look at it like it's a tool, I don't have to have a hamster running on the wheel. You know, playing the theme song to the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> you know, I don't have to be in that mode. So it's, it's a, I guess it's a matter of recognizing. Mm -hmm. Somebody said earlier, choice. So we don't have to be be like that. We need just to learn mm. and, and be good to ourselves. Yeah. Like, yeah, and you did. You said it very well, actually. And I think that it's so. Again, it, this practice here that we're cultivating is is an ability to know ourselves, to know what our mind does, and how it gets caught and how it gets free. And we can then take it out into our lives off the cushion and see that, oh, I'm completely lost. Or my mind's like a ping pong ball or what do you call pinball, right? And then, oh, okay, no problem. That's just what's happening. Okay, now come back and be present. This is great. This is our practice. This is if we could be doing that all day long and we got it made. Yeah. It's like talk about multitasking, but it can actually, if we take our practice, it's multi-mindfulness. <laughs> because you can only do one thing at a time, even though you may say, oh, I have ten things to do and i got to get them done in two minutes. The reality is your mind can only be on one thing at a time. Mm. And so if you're mindful of that, that could actually change that energy of what we think is multitasking and say, oh, I'm just going to be mindful at least eight seconds on this, eight seconds on that, come back to that. <laughs> but you're aware of where you're at mm -hmm. in that eight, eight seconds. You're not on the other spot, so you're only giving that eight seconds of one thing. You actually only gave it two seconds because your mind was in here. But if you can think of it as multi-mindfulness, you can still do it all and really even be present in each one. Got that? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Okay, um, if I can repeat it just very briefly, I'll try. But using mindfulness to notice as you're being, as you're multitasking. So if you're doing something, you can spend four seconds on one thing and be mindful, and then eight seconds on the next and be mindful, and just use your mindfulness no matter how fast you're going, is essentially what you're saying, I think. Well, some people, I just want to add that some people think mindfulness is multitasking. Right, it's doing something and knowing what you're doing as you're doing it. You're doing two things at once. I don't know. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, can you explain right action? Because you were talking about how you wake up in the middle of the night and have anxieties in your heart. Mm -hmm. And you allow yourself to feel it. But sometimes, and I think this is true for most, well, you know, when you think about the political
So I think there's a lot of things here. It's a, it's a very important question, especially during these times where there is so much suffering externally and for some of us internally. Um, I think it's really important that we care for our grief, that we give ourselves the space and time to feel the suffering, the, the suffering that we have in relation to the planet and really our concern or anxiety, and not pretend that there's nothing going on, that there's something wrong. There is nothing wrong with you if you're feeling grief for the world. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a normal, healthy response to the suffering of the planet. And it's from that space of being, being open to it that I think the greatest wisdom can flow. That when we can sit with the truth of how things are, that we can then make a choice and learn how to act skillfully and we can do it from a place of being very, very present. But if we're trying to get, push away our anxiety and fear and worry and sadness, then we're acting out of a place of aversion in some sense. And so, so I think that... Um, I think that it's, it's always it's an ongoing task of developing equanimity, developing that ease, that, that ability to be with suffering, and then acting. And, and it's not cutting off our passion for something or a desire for it to change, but cu- having that desire come from the equanimity that sees the true nature of things. That's how I see it. And sometimes it's not worth, sometimes the dwelling, I mean, we have to be really careful with when you start worrying about something, it can just lead to more and more worry and anxiety and fear. And sometimes it's really important to say no, to stop that, because we know that it's not really going to lead to anything. It just leads to more suffering. But just, okay, acknowledge, I acknowledge it. Oftentimes when I feel a lot of anxiety about the situation in the world, I'm also really sad and so that's, again, what I'm talking about, checking what's happening under, underneath. Feel the sadness. When I acknowledge the sad, sadness, there's some ease, and then that gives me more choice for right action, as you're pointing to. That's, how, that's what I would say. In the back. I like what you said about um, finding that even while working, that you're still living. You know, like, I was tumbling through a, a year-to-live practice when I stumbled on that. You know, I was like, I was at work, and like I don't have the means to take my final year of living in this human existence away from work, so the time is still ticking off on that. And I was like, wow, I am still living, even in the midst of this customer needing this thing done and all of that. This mm-hmm. is my life. Yeah. And uh, it really gave me an ability to be present for like my coworkers instead of just like the, the showing up and it's like, okay, what's the job today? we got to get this done. But to really find out what's going on in their life, you know, and, and like share what's going on in mine. The ability to open that present came from that, that practice. That's, that's great. That's a wonderful story. And I know that practice is profound for those of you who've done that, working with having a year to live and really how would you live your life. And that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yes. One thought that comes to mind with multitasking was it's an oxymoron. <laughs> impossible, as Rick said. Um, second thing, I'd love to know uh, what the outcome was of your friend, the, the lawyer, <laughs> and, uh, 
possible suspension for not multitasking. Uh -huh. And thirdly, I think we, we live in a society and a culture which is sort of epitomizes the, you know, the Buddhist concept of uh, the hungry ghost. As in the hungry ghost has this little mouth, and it's as though in the culture, the more we have, the more we want, the smaller the mouth gets, and the more frustration and anxiety builds because mm -hmm. it's just you can't stuff it in fast enough. We are, we are a culture of hungry ghosts. I agree. Um, my friend, let's see, she <laughs> trying to remember. She left the law firm because she felt like it didn't meet, it didn't come in sync with her values, and she went and did. Uh, she went to do human rights law in the former Soviet Union. <coughs> so she's doing good. Yes. I was wondering with the younger people, you talked about like 13, 14, 15 year olds that are really stressed and mm -hmm. so busy and have a lot of anxiety. Is there anything specific you think that I could share with you know, younger people like that that have a lot of anxiety and mm -hmm. are so busy they can't, you know, they're you know, on the brink of tears sometimes when I'm seeing with them because they're so busy and mm. you know, don't know how to handle that. That's a hard question. She was asking about how, what do you tell young people who, or, or some advice for young people who are caught in this cycle of busyness and stress. And um, I think, you know, in some ways they're so caught in the culture and they have, someone talked about choice earlier and they have probably less choice because of the demands of their family and uh, school and so forth. Um, I, I, I don't really, I mean, I could, one thing I would say is meditation is great <laughs> for, young, for teens. I mean, we bring meditation to teenagers, and there's been a tremendous change, I've noticed, in kids who were feeling stressed out, who brought that into their lives. But I think it's mostly, what I always feel, it's about us trying to model a different way and offering that as the advice. Like, can we live in a sane way and share it with our younger friends or students if we're teachers? Can we, can we bring that quality of peace, of presence in each moment? Can we, can we live it and then they can see it? Because you can give all the advice you want, especially teenagers, they don't listen to you anyway. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a hard question. And I appreciate you asking. Let me see what time it is. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> it's 9.13 and we have to end in two minutes. So I appreciate the discussion. It's really rich and, um, and I think it's important and I encourage us all to keep talking about it so that we can support each other in finding ways to not answer the phone <laughs> if we don't have to. So let's end with a very short meditation. So as you sit here, feeling your body, feeling your breath, see if you can relax into this sense of, this is my life. This is it. Right here, right now, this is it. This is our life. 
And maybe you have some concern and worry, anxiety about things when you leave here. Maybe you're feeling pretty relaxed or maybe you're tired or whatever it is, it's all fine. Can we find some peace in the midst of things? So I dedicate this evening to the benefit of all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and free. May suffering be reduced, happiness be increased. May people slow down and find ease in their life. And may all of our good benefit and work that we've done tonight, may it lead to the awakened heart and mind everywhere. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 13, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.